welcome to today's episode of Ownership Matters, a podcast for homeowners in resident-owned communities, brought to you by Rock USA. I'm Paul Bradley. And I'm Mike Bullard. We have a great guest for you today. We're being joined by Esther Sullivan, the author of a book titled Manufactured Insecurity, Mobile Home Parks and Americans' Tenuous Right to Place. Esther is a huge advocate for homeowners in manufactured home communities, and I am inspired by the work she does every day. As research for her book, Esther moved into two manufactured home communities that were closing down, and her interest was in researching the sociological impacts on the homeowners themselves during the closure and after the closure. She'll talk more about what happened to those homeowners in our conversation. This conversation runs a bit longer than our normal episodes, but it's because Esther had so much good stuff to say. I don't know about you, Paul, but I learned a lot from this conversation with Esther, and I know that our listeners will too. But before we jump into that interview, let me give you a brief background on Esther. Esther Sullivan is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Colorado, Denver. Her research focuses on poverty, housing, legal regulation, and inequality, with a special interest in both forced and voluntary mobility. Her book, Manufactured Insecurity, Mobile Home Parks and Americans' Tenuous Right to Place, won a 2019 Robert Park Award from the American Sociological Association. The book examines the social, legal, geospatial, and market forces that intersect to create housing insecurity for low-income residents in mobile home parks. When she's not teaching, Esther is advocating for residents of manufactured home communities. She's given a TED Talk, appeared on the 99% Invisible podcast, testified to the Federal Housing Finance Authority, and has been interviewed for countless news articles. She's also currently working with colleagues on a National Science Foundation-funded study surrounding the manufactured housing stock in Houston and Florida following impact from hurricanes. So uh, Esther, thank you very much for joining us today on Ownership Matters. I have to tell you from early on in our planning, uh, you were uh, one of the first guests on our list of uh, intended guests for Ownership Matters. We're really excited to have you. So thank you for joining us. Oh yeah, thank you for having me and thank you for all the work that you all do at Rock USA. Oh, thank you. It is our pleasure, truly. And you're our first academic, true academic, and we could not think of a better one to joining us today. So you're a college professor and you took to researching uh, mobile home parks. And we're going to really get into that uh, quite a bit. But first, we really wanted you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? And, and here's a f- fun question. Uh, when you were in high school, say, uh, what is it you thought you'd be doing at this point in your career? Yeah, wow, that is a good question. I grew up kind of half and half in um, the Appalachian Mountains in Pennsylvania and then in Miami, Florida. When I was 12, I moved from a town of 2,000 to a middle school of 4,000 kids. Yeah. So I'm very much half and half from a very small town and, you know, from Miami. Um, and yeah, I, my parents still live in Miami, so Miami's still my home for sure. When I was in college, you know, I was an English major in college, and I didn't come to the social sciences and sociology until later in, in life. So I don't know. I think, you know, I think I originally wanted to work in like the news media and I did for a little bit intern and I quickly discovered just how demanding that work is. And so I thought maybe I'll pick something else. <laughs> Round the clock work. It is wonderful to have you here. Thank you. And we want to 
talk a lot about your research uh, and your book, of course, but what got you interested in manufactured housing in the first place and specifically manufactured housing communities? Yeah, you know, I when I went to graduate school, I, well, I, I, I went back to graduate school because I was interested in housing. Actually, you know, we're, we're speaking um, right near the anniversary of Hurricane Katrina and it was really Hurricane Katrina. I was living in Texas. We had just a wave of basically, you know, disaster refugees coming into Texas after Katrina. And I went to New Orleans for quite a, uh, a while and, and worked just with, you know, the Red Cross and, and other humanitarian groups. And that really alerted me to the role of housing and housing security in the production of broader inequalities. And that I wanted, that made me interested in returning to, in going to graduate school to study housing specifically. And so I linked up with professors who studied housing and one professor in particular studied um, like colonia housing, which along the Texas, New Mexico, Arizona kind of area, the U.S.-Mexico border, there are communities where people own the land that oftentimes use manufactured housing as a way to self-produce, you know, owned housing that they live in at very, very, very low levels of affordability. And a professor, the professor I worked for one day, he wanted to show me this uh, manufactured home community that was near some colonias that, that we had a long-term uh, research project in. And he had just raved about this community, how it was so beautiful. It had a rec center with a pool and playgrounds for the kids and just really nicely laid out. And we went to visit it and it was gone. It was like it had been erased and all the hookups for the individual manufactured homes were still there. And it was just, it was a really formative experience for me to see an entire community just disappeared, wiped away like that. The rec center was still there. The pool was still there. There were little like signs in the rec center where people had pinned up messages to try and sell their homes as they were dealing with this eviction and questions about what happened in this community just really started what's been the last 12 years of my research, understanding, you know, why these communities close, where they close, and what happens when they close. Wow, very interesting. I'd never heard that story before, Esther. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, so now we know what got you interested in mobile home parks or manufactured home communities that close down. And you took a really interesting path to learn more about just how this works, sort of from the inside out. And you moved into two different communities. Uh, can you draw a picture for our listeners? What were these communities like? How to, Maybe how you found them to begin with? But what did you see when you first arrived? And tell us about your experience here. Yeah, I mean, when I when I began my research into understanding, you know, for me, I'm a sociologist, right, to understand the sociological impacts of a mass eviction that happens when a, a manufacturing home community closes, I needed to first locate some communities because there was no academic literature on this. There was very little academic literature on manufactured housing in general even though it forms such an important source of affordable housing in this country. You know, in some states, there's one in 10 homes is a manufactured home. And yet in, in the academic literature, there's almost nothing written. And so that really necessitated just basically creating some of the data that I wanted to analyze. And I did some of that using geospatial mapping to map where, where communities were closing. But eventually, you know, all of these questions about like, what are the impacts? 
impacts? What is the experience? What are the resources? What are the strategies that people employ um, to try and salvage their home or to, to scramble to, to find new housing? Those questions, they could only really be answered by being embedded within communities. And so I picked um, two states to do this study, Texas and Florida, because those are the states with the largest uh, total manufactured housing communities. And so first I moved into a community in Florida and I'm making it sound easier than it was. It was such a challenge to find these communities. I wanted to move into a community that was actively closing so I could kind of document the impacts, but it couldn't be closed already. I really wanted to be there before the closure happened. And I relied on all kinds of statewide um, housing advocacy groups who supplied me with lists of potentially closing communities or communities that they thought were at risk. And I just started calling around um, landlords to see what was going on. This process took quite a while, but eventually I found a landlord who said, well, I can rent you a house down here, but we're not going to be here that much longer. And I just thought, well, that is exactly the community that that I need to be in. And so I moved into a 55 and older park in uh, South Florida. I was the only resident under 55. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful place to live for the one year where I lived there before the community was closed and everybody was forced to move. So fascinating. Uh, so you were not, you were a rules violation right out of the gates, uh, and you could have been evicted for that, Esther. No, all joking aside. So uh, draw a picture of the community in Florida. Then, when you first moved in, what what did it look like? How many homes were there? What what was it like? There are about one hundred and ten homes. It was a wonderful, wonderful community. It had a huge green space in the center. It was probably about a mile and a half from the ocean. And residents always commented on that. They said like, this is living in this manufactured home community is how I'm able to afford a slice of paradise. And uh, it truly was like a paradise. I mean, residents gardened, they had all kinds of porches that they had built onto their house so they could enjoy the outdoor space in Florida and enjoy their neighborhoods. And like, you know, like many manufactured home communities, they, it was totally walled in and fenced off. So it was a really safe space for these. I mean, many of the residents were, were quite elderly. Um, my neighbor was a World War II veteran and residents would ride their bikes around the, the park in the evening. And it was just a really safe and, and neighborly, wonderful community. And Esther, so who did you get to meet there? What kind of people, you, you mentioned your next door neighbor, but who were the other people that were living there and, and what were they saying in that year leading up to this imminent closure? There were all kinds of people living in this park. I mean, this park was, was 55 and older, so it was primarily retirees, but you know, that's a range of people. There were people there that were 55 and still kind of working or taking second jobs. There were people that were 91 years old. Um, there were people that were severely homebound and really relied on neighbors to kind of check on them. There were people who were still active like I said, riding their bike every night at sunset around the park. So there was just such a range of people. And, you know, I don't want to romanticize these communities. Neighbors gossiped about each other. You know, neighbors ignored each other. But neighbors also showed up for each other. And they really supported each other, especially in that year leading up to the park closure, where there were so many unknowns and everybody was just trying to figure out what to do. 
sounds like people in just about every neighborhood, right? So compare that, if you would, to the community in Texas that you moved into. What was what was the story there and, and what was going on there at the time? You know, the, the parks that I moved into in Texas, it was really actually not a single park closure that I was dealing with and documenting there. It was 24 parks in this a town of Alvin, Texas, which is basically just like a suburb of Houston. And um, the city there had instituted an ordinance that in their infinite wisdom, they said was going to upgrade the parks um, that had many of them had been, you know, in existence for decades. And some were older and, and some probably did need some upgrading, but the city really instituted just a range of what were really costly improvements. And some of them were purely aesthetic, like fencing and things that didn't it really contribute to like public health and safety. They were really aesthetic. And uh, they're about how the parks looked. Uh, and, and how the, the community interacted with, with these many, many um, parks that were in, in the community. And there, uh, the parks were quite different. They were much smaller. Sometimes they would just be like six homes in a tiny little park. And there were many of them throughout this, uh, this town of Alvin, Texas. And um, because of the demographic differences, because of just like who's living in the Houston area as opposed to South Florida, the population was really different. So in Texas, it was primarily Latinos, many recent immigrants, and many families. So in these part, in, in this community, uh, what happened was that some of the parks did um, kind of spend the money to do the upgrades. The landlords spent the money to do the upgrades to get up to code and they remained open. And some landlords, either didn't want to or simply could not afford to make these upgrades and those parks closed. So in, in Texas, I was documenting the closure of a couple different parks, primarily two, two neighboring parks um, that closed and evicted about a dozen families. Wow, so fascinating. Almost uh, municipal government forced uh, displacement by the sounds of it in the case of Texas. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I find that a lot in my research that cities are absolutely complicit in the insecurity that we see in manufactured housing communities, whether it's, you know, they're complicit in a zoning change that results in, in a closure, or whether it's just a kind of general stance where they're not protective of the manufactured housing in their jurisdiction. Cities really contribute to these processes. Right on. Yes. I'm really curious if you can summarize for us, maybe first in Florida, Esther, uh, what came of the homeowners? Where did people move? Uh, what were the impacts on, on these older residents? Yeah, the impacts of these mass closures were just sweeping and they were so wide. They were so, they kind of spread so far beyond just the housing, right? Because residents, well, they lost their community, they lost their home where many, I mean, as your listeners know, people live in these parks for decades. In, in both states where I worked, there were multiple generations of the same family living in, in a park. And so there was just a lot of attachment to these communities, despite the fact that, you know, you're renting the land under your home, you identify as a homeowner, you've achieved your slice of the American dream. And so these closures were devastating. They were personally, emotionally, psychologically devastating for households. 
they also had a lot of actual physical health impacts where residents, you know, were in some cases hospitalized or they were reporting heightened blood pressure, migraines, increased use of, of um, drugs that they were already prescribed for other ailments. So there was just a lot of health uh, impacts of these evictions. And um, there were also disruptions to something that's actually really important. Sociologists see or is very important in supporting health and well-being, which is just those community connections and social networks. In these communities, as your listeners definitely know, people rely on each other. Um, whether it's just like a neighborly kind of, I know where you live and I see you. And if you don't come out of your house for two days, I'm going to kind of notice that. Or whether it's actually like, let me help you move a heavy box. There's all different kinds of support that is going on in these communities and neighbors lost that. And they lost it at, you know, a really critical time when they needed that social support. So those were some of the primary kind of sociological, I would say, uh, outcomes of the eviction. But, you know, there were real, real economic and financial costs. The move itself was is just incredibly expensive and residents lost so much moving to a new community. All their additions, all of their expenditures, you know. Yes, sir. I think that's, you know, part of the stigma around manufactured housing is when people say, okay, this here that a community is closing like that. And they say, well, you know, what's the big deal? You just hook it up and, and move your house somewhere else. Right. And, and you know, that's not true. And we know that's not true. And everybody listening to this knows that's not true, but, but you were there for that. And how many people were able to do that? And for those who weren't, you know, do you, do you, are you still in touch with any of these folks? Do you know where they landed or how they're doing and, and how has that impacted their lives X number of years later? Yeah, no, it's such an important question. In my, in my study, about a third of residents were not able to move their home. So two thirds did, but you know, that came with costs in some, in some cases that resulted in serious structural damage to the home that the resident then needed to spend thousands of dollars to repair, right? So just because a home is moved doesn't mean it's moved correctly, right? Um, so of the, you know, of those that moved, that's a really important caveat. But for the for the third that that simply was not able to move their home, I mean, they lost everything. Just like everyone else, they lost their community. They lost their homes, their largest, their biggest asset, and all their accrued housing equity. And they lost shelter. So many transitioned into kind of precarious housing arrangements or 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 things that you know, um, as, as sociologists who study housing, we consider to be precarious or um, so doubling up with family, you know, sleeping at, at somebody's house or moving in with a kid. I had residents that moved into very almost like a squatting situation, just attempting to find shelter. And I even had one resident, my study transitioned into homelessness and remained homeless until I lost touch with him about four years after my study. And that, that person what's really important was a homeowner and that person owned his home outright. He only paid his, his lot rent every, every month. So, I mean, to see that, you know, from homeowner to homeless is just truly, truly devastating. I think that's something people don't recognize uh, in, in terms of the affordability of this housing stock is just how many people 
uh, live in homes that are debt free and only have the site fee and utilities as expenses. And it's incredibly affordable. Uh, so uh, certainly once you destabilize that house and, and displace that homeowner, replacing that for a large number of people is impossible. I'm, I'm absolutely confident of it. Uh, did you, uh, were you able to follow some folks into that next housing solution? Did you look at any of the economic you know, choices people were having to make, Esther, or was that really beyond your study? I did follow people just for short periods of time after the move, because really in, in, in Florida, I moved then directly into Texas to kind of repeat the study. And so I followed up with people, you know, over the next kind of year or so. And, you know, they continued to have these kind of same sociological impacts where they missed their community. They missed their networks of friends. They felt out of place and out of sorts and uh, had to adapt to a new community, but there's also real like objective impacts that go with that. You know, they had to transition their doctors, transition their pharmacy, transition their kids to a new school. So there are very real objective, you know, pieces of that puzzle. And they were really clear, like people just continue to deal with the, the economic toll of either repairing damage that was done during the move or replacing things that they lost whether that be, you know, a porch that they just enjoy or a wheelchair ramp that they need to be able to access their home. Were there discernible differences in terms of the impacts from the 55 plus community in Florida to the uh, all age or family communities in Texas that would be noteworthy? You know, it's really hard to make that comparison just because there is also there was a lot of variation in how the state treated these residents. So in Florida, there was more of like a a system where residents would receive a voucher for relocation and get a mover that was recommended by the state. And in Texas, they were really just kind of left on their own. Um, there's just not a there's not a broad state statute in Texas to protect people in the event of a, of a closure like this. And so they really had to rely on interpersonal networks to, to get things done. So that was a really, that was a clear difference. Esther, I want to go back to something you said a, a minute ago about how as a sociologist, you consider some types of housing precarious situations, or uh, I think I've got that right. And, and uh, now I'm wondering, I'm wondering now after doing this research, where do you rank living in a commercially owned community? Is that considered precarious housing? Compare that to a co-op uh, is, is, and is that, you know, having any sort of ripple effects through, through your sector? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. As sociologists, when we talk about real housing precarity, we're talking about some specific things, meaning you don't have a lease, you're doubling up with family, you're unhoused, you're living in a motel. So there's like those types of, of kind of standard housing precarity. And I'm, and I don't put, you know, living in a manufactured housing community where you're just renting the land anywhere near that. Because in many cases, that can be a stable, you know, long-term solution until it's not. And the problem is that oftentimes residents are the last ones to know that, that it's become unstable. Um, a, a landlord decides to retire and kind of has that in the works and the residents are the last to know. So I do see the recent, I mean, last decade, five years, 
influx of more corporate ownership and the consolidation of what have been mom and pop owned parks where residents can have the opportunity at least to have a relationship with their landlord. And the, the move away from that to the consolidation of these parks under corporate ownership or private equity investment, I see that as a real danger. And it's going to destabilize these communities, you know, that already have the risk of, of, you know, the divided ownership where homeowners are renting the land. The, the move of, of corporate interests into the ownership of these properties, I think, signals a real danger. Yeah. I want to take you back to Florida for a moment. You mentioned a voucher. Um, I'm assuming it's a, a relocation voucher for homeowners to get some resources to actually relocate their home. You said about two thirds of folks were able to relocate their home. Is that what you're talking about? A relocation fund? Yeah, it was a relocation fund. And so how did that work? There a number of states have put relocation funds in place to help homeowners with this situation. What was your experience or what did you see in terms of the relocation fund in Florida? Did it work for folks? What were the, what were the pros and cons? First, I mean, the pro is that they got some relocation assistance, right? And I don't want to critique any state that is actually providing relocation assistance to residents. However, what I show in my research is that the structure of that assistance really matters. So in states like Oregon, you know, residents can get cash assistance that's actually proportional to what it actually costs to move a manufactured home, you know, eight to $10,000. In Florida, residents, you know, they, they fought for this relocation fund and they got it, but it was $2,000 for a single wide. I think it was like $3,000 for double wide. So it did not, it did not cover the actual cost of moving these homes. And what happened was that corporate parks kind of intervened to fill that gap and said, we'll cover the remaining costs to move your home if you move into our sun communities or whatever it was. So there was a, a major m movement of these residents from mom and pop owned parks to corporate owned parks because they were they were able to cover that, that gap that the resident themselves would, would otherwise have to cover. And that was good in the short term, but in the long term, I mean, even in the, the near long term, residents immediately saw their rents double and even triple what they had been paying in, in this mom and pop park. Gotcha. And in Texas, no relocation funds in Texas. Were the proportion of uh, homeowners that were able to relocate their homes differ in Texas? Were fewer of them able to relocate or how did that work out? In a sense, you know, people were able to relocate, but what was happening in Texas was really just like a complete lack of regulation and oversight. And in those situations, people were able to move their homes, but the moving was just, I mean, I think shoddy is the only word I can use. Homes were moved that probably should never have been moved. Homes were seriously, seriously damaged in the moves, probably because they should not have been moved in the first place. So residents were able to salvage their homes. But in this kind of Texas uh, laissez-faire environment where there was very little regulation and oversight going on, there were all kinds of practices that resulted in, in really, really serious damage to homes. I mean, I'm talking about homes where the move 
created holes in the roof that you could see right through. Interesting. Yeah. I was really interested in your part of your book that talked about relocation of homes. And in particular, you commented on even in adding tile floors in the bathrooms, for instance, could make a home immobile because of the weight differential and the the frame not being able to handle that. I think that would be news to a lot of people. But what did you learn about the relocation business in your uh, experience in these three communities? You know, that was that was such a heartbreaking kind of realization for me and for residents that it's like almost any type of improvement that you do to your home ultimately makes it less able to be relocated in the future. And of course, residents aren't thinking about relocating their home in the future. They're thinking about this home that they own now and how they can make their life in it, like any homeowner, enjoyable, right? And so they make changes, they retile a floor, and then that tile is so heavy that that means eventually their home can't be moved. I mean, this came as a serious shock to residents who had cared for these homes, invested in these homes, and then learned that this manufactured home that was, you know, just 10 years old was not structurally sound for relocation. That was a a serious, serious shock to many, to many homeowners. Yeah. Well, as simple as tile floor in the bathroom would be a shock to me. I, I, that really was incredible. So I want to fast forward. It's, it's been quite a few years since you lived in these communities um, I don't want to date you on air, but you've already said you're you're under 55. Was it about 10 years ago that you? I moved out of the last, yeah, it was. It was because I moved out of the last community in 2012. 2012, great. And so we saw you testify this summer at the Federal Housing Finance Authority. So I, you, and of course we see you out and about some. No, you're still very active in the manufactured housing sector and you care a lot about this sector and we really greatly appreciate that. But tell our listeners, what have you been up to lately uh, specific to manufactured housing? Well, a lot of my work now revolves around about, is more about translating my research findings to people, to policymakers, to local officials. And so I do a lot of work where, you know, residents just asked me to show up at a city council meeting. In fact, I just got an email today in uh, Florida County where I might attend a, a city council meeting via Zoom to let city council officials know these homes are not mobile. They're intended to be moved from the factory once. These communities are places where people live and invest in their home. I mean, even these very simple kinds of, that that you and I and all of your listeners know, I mean, they can really come as news to city councils. So um, all the way, you know, from from very, very local level, all the way to to the state, you know, in Colorado, we, we we passed in 2019, a great mobile, it's called the Manufactured Housing Oversight Bill to protect residents, to give them a longer notice of eviction, to give them a um, helpline that they can call to have some, some mediation around landlord issues. So, so some of my work is policy work. And then my, the research space, I really turned my attention to the impact of natural disasters on manufactured housing. Now, I think that there's a view that manufactured housing is just structurally unsound in in a natural disaster like a hurricane, when actually research shows that when manufactured housing is tied down appropriately to these new tie down requirements, it performs 
pretty similar to site built in, in a disaster. But what happens and what has happened over the last hundred years is that manufactured housing is oftentimes sited. It's located in more hazard prone land. So it's located in flood zones. It's located in floodways. It's located in commercial and industrial zones where there's not the same level of what's called hazard mitigation. You know, just mitigating technologies and storm drains and things that protect other housing in the event of a disaster. And so a lot of my research now is with, with a team of other researchers is documenting how manufactured housing is, is impacted differently than site-built by nature of where it's placed not by nature of the structure itself. That's particularly timely because as we're recording this, of course, Hurricane Ida has just blown through uh, Louisiana, Mississippi. And I remember when we were in Louisiana, uh, uh, driving out into the, not far outside New Orleans, you saw manufactured homes up on stilts, essentially five, six feet off the ground, um, presumably to to uh, get out of the flood zone. Um, and, and in, in terms of the storm work, I remember seeing a piece, I'm sure you've seen it uh, on today a few years ago where they were actually putting manufactured homes in a in a wind tunnel of sorts to and, and gearing it up to hurricane force winds and they did perform well. And what they said was that actually the parts that failed most often were the site built additions, the carports and the porches and, and that sort of thing. But the, the homes themselves as they came from the factory uh, did quite well. And that, you know, just last week we saw on, on Twitter of all places, a new report you co-authored analyzing mobile home parks in the Houston metro area. Is there anything uh, that you'd like to share with us about that? You know what, we're still conducting this study in, in the Houston metro uh, and, and comparing it to, to the performance of homes in manufactured housing communities in Florida. So we will still, you know, we have findings that are, that are still come to come out and research that we're still doing. But one really interesting thing point that kind of piggybacks on the point that you just made is that in Houston, you know, there was, it was a high water event. So, this, so there was, it was a hurricane. Wind was less of an issue than when Hurricane Harvey, water flooding was the main issue. And so we expected to see all kinds of damage in manufactured housing parks, right? But when we went down, we found that because manufactured housing is naturally elevated three feet off the ground because it's on a chassis, these homes were actually protected. Now, if that had been four feet of water in the park, five feet of water, you know, in disaster mitigation, the name of the game really is elevation, elevation, elevation. What can we do to elevate these homes? Three feet of water in a, in a site-built home that's just like slob on grade would have been devastating. It would have been catastrophic for that home. But these manufactured homes, because they're already elevated three feet, they fared really well and there was almost no damage. And so that was really interesting to see. And I, I have since um, talked with many uh, engineers who have said, you know, the way that manufactured housing is built actually lends itself to elevation. You could prop them up more than three feet if you want to. And as sea levels rise, as we deal with more of these events, that's a really interesting kind of additional um, benefit of manufactured housing. Yeah. And fact is you can go in after the fact, right? After that home has been set and uh, raise it further. So you bet. Exactly. And the technology to do so is actually, these engineers were telling me, is actually quite cheap. It really just has to do with cinder block and rebar and, and raising that 
that home, which is almost impossible to do a site built home. That's that's fabulous. Esther, I have one one question before our wrap up, because I'm thinking some of our listeners are probably wondering, how is it this young woman had two years or two and a half years of of her life to move from a state to state in in manufactured home communities that are closing down for this really fascinating research. But how does one go about assembling research support for that sort of thing? Or how does, how'd you pull that off? That's fascinating. Well, yeah, that's what I, that's what I had to do. I had to take, you know, on an entire year before moving into these places to, to write grant proposals and, you know, just keep writing them and keep getting rejected, keep getting rejected until you finally get one or two that you can cobble together and fund a research project like this. You know, the benefit of manufactured housing is that it's deeply, deeply affordable. And so that aspect of the research was, you know, relatively affordable to just to, to move in, in, and rent a house in these communities. But yeah, I mean, that's that's how we fund this kind of research, uh, this kind of path-breaking new uh, theory-building research. We, we need those grants for social scientists to be able to do this. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. I was going to ask, Esther, this, this body of work that you've done has taken you many places, you know, during and since. You've done a TED Talk. You've been testifying. What are some of the more unusual outcomes of this research that you weren't expecting going in? What in terms of opportunities or places you've you know you've been invited to and appeared, and what do you think that will translate into in terms of progress? Yeah, I mean, I never thought I would be testifying at you know to a federal like the Federal Housing Finance Agency. I never imagined the kind of the I never imagined I would be you know on NPR any of these things, but that just kind of speaks to the fact that that we're still trying to understand a, a piece of our housing stock that is pervasive, that is necessary, that is a lifeline to so many, that is a route to the American dream for so many. And we don't really have that many vo- expert voices in the room. You know, y'all are, are some of them, but, um, I guess being an expert voice in this kind of small space has taken me to all kinds of places, but I should say, I wanna go more places because I want to have national legislation around manufactured housing. You know, that's, that is what I, that is my dream is, is to have our, um, our lawmakers at the federal level recognize that we can't have 50 different state solutions to a form of housing that is a piece of America. It's a piece of the American dream. It's as American as apple pie, baseball, anything you wanna say, right? Uh, And we need some national legislation to just acknowledge its role in the affordable housing stock of the United States. And so if you're writing that bill, what are the top three, say, uh, uh, factors that go into that bill? What are the top three most important, crucial bits that you could that you could get uh, voted in or, or uh, written into law? 
Well, you know the first one. It's a right of first refusal. It's an opportunity for resident purchase of parks, right? That's the gold standard. That's how we stabilize these communities. It's about the resident's relationship to the land under their home. All of this comes back to property, property rights, and property ownership. Whoever owns the property has all the power. And so the more we can collectivize that property ownership, we can maintain affordability and and have some type of security, long-term security. So that's the first one. I mean, we all know that. Um, but you know, it's more than just a right of first refusal. We need things in place to give residents time to collectively organize. Because too often when a park is up for sale, that's the first time residents are encountering or even thinking about coming together to, to purchase their community. And so we need longer notice periods. We need more robust notice and um, more organizing before a park is up for sale. We need more resident um, and homeowners associations, uh, statewide homeowners associations. And of course we need longer notice periods that don't treat manufactured homeowners like they're an apartment renter. These are simply different different groups of people. Um, and so these short eviction notice periods are just really absurd in that situation. Esther, thank you so much for joining us on Ownership Matters. This has really been super interesting, really fun. I feel like we could have you back on at least three subjects that you raised during this. But I want to thank you and I want to thank your professor who took you to to uh, a closed down community in the Colonias to, uh, you know, obviously set in motion just an incredibly impactful career focused on, on a housing stock that I agree too few people understand and too few people can speak about it so eloquently. So thank you for joining us and thank you for the work you do and, and uh, keep it up, please. Thank you and thank you for the work you do and thank you for all the residents who are contributing to this work. Thanks, Esther. This has been really fun. Wow, Mike. What a great conversation with Esther. She really is a true champion for homeowners. I'm always captivated by what she's working on and, and where she's speaking. Her research into displacement is profound, and frankly, I'm blown away, Paul. I was really struck by her story about the homeowner who was forced into homelessness after the community in Florida shut down. Uh, that was particularly hard to hear. And yet, stories like that continue to happen all over the country as communities change hands and sometimes close down. Luckily, Esther is so willing to share her research and advocate for homeowners wherever she's needed. We're so lucky to have her working in this space, huh? Great guest, Paul. And I can't wait to see who you've selected for us to interview next. Thanks to all the listeners for joining us on today's episode of Ownership Matters. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And hey, if there are guests you'd like us to interview, please let us know and talk soon.